Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to part two with wine writer and part-time winemaker Chris Boiling. So thanks to people like Chris, who are always trying to push the boundaries with lesser known varieties, it keeps things super interesting in the world of wine. And so you're going to hear about Chris's crazy winemaking projects today. And we will have some fun touching on grape varieties that I'm sure you've never heard of. Does Pearl of Victoria sound familiar? It didn't to me. So get ready to add that to your list of known varieties and a whole load more. We're gonna talk about the peewee varieties. These are amazing for sustainability as they've been crossed specifically using Vetus species to create new grapes that are fungus resistant. So they don't need all that spraying of industrial chemicals, less need for tractors to be out in the vineyards, there's less soil pollution, less need actually for the factories to produce these chemicals. And the idea of these new varieties, along with being fungal resistant is that they actually taste good too. So a really interesting development in the world of wine. We are going to go across to Georgia. So I'm ruining things slightly to be telling you already, but Chris is working with some yes, lesser known varieties of Georgia to produce his own wine. And the grapes are Kisi and Kikfi. So for contrast, we'll of course be touching on the two most well-known grapes of Georgia, Saparavi and Ricazzatelli. So Saparavi, so you know, it's the most planted red in the country. It's known as a Tenturier variety. And that basically means that its pulp is also red rather than just the skin. It ages really well. It has chewy tannins, it's high acidity and full-bodied. Typically you're going to find blackcurrant, blackberry, licorice notes and maybe some coffee in there, a little bit of earthiness and perhaps a smoky nature. Whereas Ricazzatelli is the white grape variety and it can be made either as a single varietal wine or interestingly enough it is often blended with two other varieties that we've already mentioned so Kissy and Kickfee. Now Ricazzatelli on its own can be quite neutral but if yields are low enough and it's from a good site and aged of course in stainless steel you can get these aromas of quince, some apple, a bit of citrus nature. It's a really refreshing wine because it has good acidity and that's what also makes it great to age in quivery on its skins and if done this way you're then going to get flavors of dried apricots, honey, some sweet cooking spices and of course a moderate tannin grip because of the time on the skins. Now you can't talk about Georgia without talking about those quivries. These are the clay pots that get buried in the ground and so Chris is going to talk about his personal experience working with them. 
How do you clean them when they are staying in the ground? Well, he'll explain how, quite a good story, and also more modern techniques that are being used to submerge the cap. Now, if you don't know what that is that I've just said, you will by the end of this podcast. So if you are ready to learn about an obscure great variety or two, let's go. I would like to talk about your COVID dream of making, <clears throat> ready, nine wines in five countries in one vintage. That's crazy. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so during COVID, when I couldn't travel, and I think travel is one of my passions, I sort of had this idea, well, one of the things I had to cancel was a trip to Georgia, where mm. I was going to learn about winemaking in Quivery, mm-hmm. and that was put on hold during COVID. But while I was sitting there, you know, for two years not travelling, cancelling all these flights, I thought, yeah, what I really like doing is these experimental wines, and I like you know, that idea of teaming up with a winemaker somewhere, learning from him, but writing articles, you know, by getting my hands dirty. And it sort of snowballed because I thought of all these different producers that I could work with or that I'd like to work with. And I approached them and they all said yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was quite a hectic, probably two months. You know, I left home on August the 28th and didn't get back until I think, October the 20th. Okay. Um, and all that time I was charging around making wines in different countries. In the end, I made eight wines in four countries. Which is in, not bad. In one vintage. Now, two of those wines are my own from my own little vineyard in Slovenia. Mm-hmm. The rosé from some Pinot Noir vines. And then a little from my uh, field blend, which is mostly Lasky Riesling with a bit of ship on ferment. So... Mm-hmm. Those won't be released there, you know. It's really for family and friends who come to the vineyard, you know, because I'm not really there to look after them and I don't want the responsibility of getting them all checked and (laughs) doing all the paperwork for them. So the other the six wines I will be releasing and, you know, I've teamed up with really good winemakers so they can help me and they can look after things and, you know, I know the wines at the end are going to be great or as good as they can be you know they've got my um so they're all unique wines yeah you love Uh, your interesting varieties don't you yeah so the main thing with this was to help promote lesser known great varieties from lesser known regions Mm -hmm. i just wanted to make life difficult for me you know hard to sell mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. using (laughs) varieties like pearl of victoria which no one yeah, has what heard the of. Heck? I've never heard of. So you stop right now and tell me what is Pearl of Victoria and where did it come from? <laughs> so, yeah, my first wine was uh, sparkling wine. So I uh, went to Hungary. Now, okay, uh, we're in Hungary now. Okay. Yeah, Etiek, which is quite close to Budapest, is probably like 40 minutes from Budapest. It's the first DOC for sparkling wine in Hungary. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good region for sparkling wine, but they're going with the traditional grape varieties, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, uh, Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc for mm-hmm. sparkling wines. But I'd met this guy there and he had two really interesting varietal sparkling wines. Mm-hmm. One was Gruner Valtellina. 
Of, oh, wow. From the days when Hungary was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm-hmm. So it was planted then. So, you know, it's been there a long time. But I thought his sparkling wine from Grunewaldlin was, was fantastic. That sort of peppery finish. Oh, nice. And a sparkling. was really, yeah, really showed the variety. And, you know, I haven't had many sparkling Grunewaldliners, but... That was special. And I'm assuming not much time on Lees, if, if any, maybe Charmant method? Is he making it kind of clean and fresh? No, no, tr- traditional, classic method. Oh, traditional method, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, champagne method. Okay. Okay. And then he also had this wine, which which I couldn't taste then because he doesn't make a lot of it, from Perla Victoria. Right, and here we go. <laughs> so, like you, I'd never heard of it before. I googled it, nothing came up. But he told me it was... Created in the 1960s in Hungary for sparkling wine. And a few experimental plots were planted, but it never really took off. But he loves it. Did he happen to know where the crossing came from? So, yeah, it's a crossing between a table grape, Pearl of Shaba. Okay. And say Villard 12375. Something like that. Oh, of course, of course. I think at that time in the 1960s and 70s, you know, there was a lot of experimental crossings done in places like Hungary. Mm. You know, they were trying to get good quality grapes, but quite productive to cope with the demand from Russia for wines. And and that was their big market then. So they created a lot of these grape varieties. Most of them have not taken off. But as I said, there were a few plots around the country. And so my grapes for this wine came from, you know, the world's largest vineyard for Pearl of Victoria, which is one and a half hectares in size huge huge so he makes a varietal wine and i said to him well i want to blend perla victoria and grunewaldlina you know i just thought it could work for some reason so i wasn't totally sure but i went back just before christmas and tasted all the base wines and the perla victoria just tasted fantastic it was sort of like, you know, on the edge of being a good still wine, which I took as a, you know, a good sign for sparkling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was so taken with it. It really was delicious for an unknown grape variety. I couldn't believe how good it tasted. And then he put me on the spot and said, you know, what do I want my blend to be? So I said, well, 60% Pearl of Victoria and 40% Gruner. But he had fermented the Gruner. One in oak barrel and also in stainless steel. So, you know, 20% from Mm -hmm. the oak barrel and 20% from the uh, stainless steel tank. Yeah, it didn't do much. It wasn't wasn't working. And then he got inspired. This is uh, the winemaker there, Gillard. And he went back to the tanks and he did 50% Pearl of Victoria, 25% of Gruner from the oak barrel and 25% of Gruner from the stainless steel and it just sung now isn't that interesting literally 10% difference Mm. yeah he thought it was the extra 5% from the barrel to give more weight and texture yeah but it it just really worked I mean I went there expecting to spend you know the whole day with him working out the blend for this base wine but we were done in 40 minutes I didn't because it was tasted so good Mm -hmm. this, this base wine I didn't have the nerve to say, oh, well, maybe, what about if we try 49% here? <laughs> so, yeah, we Le- went with it. that. That's it. Love it. He left 
it for a bit longer so the gruner in the barrel could could stay there for an extra month before he blended them all. But yeah, no, I'm really hopeful. And he was really uh, surprised as well. I mean, he doesn't blend them because he thinks blends are cheaper or in the Hungarian market, you get more for a variety of wine. So mm-hmm. he's never blended them, but he was really impressed. And he said he's never done it, but he, he did like the taste of the base wine and he could see it. You know, working with bubbles and some of the autolytic sort of characteristics. So Very I'm quite hopeful, but it could be two years before that one sees the light of day. Okay. Now let's go to Austria because there's two great varieties that you've decided to work with. Sauvignier Gris and Muscaris. Can you describe those two great varieties? I think the interesting thing about them is they're these sort of grapes of the future, the peewees. Mm-hmm. Um, disease resistant, yeah. Yeah, disease resistant. So they were sprayed only once during the whole of 2022, which was a challenging vintage because yep. of you know, the dry summer and then the wet September. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot okay. of disease pressure in the area. But these were sprayed just once and then with like 25% of what you would normally spray on Vitis vinifera varieties okay. <laughs> so okay. that's why i like them because they are the, the, these are the grapes of the future they are the most sustainable and these two mascaris and sovenia gris are two of the four peewees that are allowed in austrian quality wines uh, well that says something then doesn't it yeah i mean mascaris is from the muscat family so it's got all the the same characteristics. Hence the name. Okay. Mm-hmm. So kind of, you know, grapey and musky and aromatic and did I say peach? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. No, it's got all those very okay. aromatic, yeah, what you would expect from a muscat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, Sauvignon Gris is pink-skinned grape. Okay. It's a crossing of Sauvignon Blanc, which we know is sort of quite disease-resistant in the UK, and Zaringer. Oh, I like the sound of that one, Zaringer. Yeah, and that's a crossing of Riesling and Tremina. Ah, okay, some aromatics in there. Yeah. Okay. So I think the green colour comes from the Tremina aspect. Mm -hmm. Now, people who have tried it on its own say it's, you know, some say it's like a Riesling, some say it's like a Sauvignon Blanc, some say it's very neutral. I think it's how you vinify it, and I think we're still experiment and even the people who have grown it you know they're new grapes so people are still trying to work out what's the best way to vinify them so what i've teamed up with uh, an organic producer called carl renner mm-hmm. and what we decided to do is the souvenir gris we've uh, vinified in amphora oak and stainless steel mm-hmm. and we've use different lengths of skin contacts from sort of overnight in the press to, uh, you know, a few days to more than six months. And then the mascaris as well, we've uh, vinified in stainless steel and amphora with a few hours skin contact and a couple of weeks skin contact. And the idea is to blend those five components to make you know, a wine that will sing and dance and be wonderful. That's, Very that's, interesting. That's the Very idea. Very interesting. <laughs> that's the idea. I mean, the idea was, well, is to promote peewees because mm-hmm. I think more people need to know about them. Yeah. And of all the peewee disease-resistant varieties, 
these are the two which have the best reviews and the probably are closest to, you know, Vitis vinifera or high quality grapes. Interesting. Now, I'm ready for a deep dive. I don't know if you are. I want to take you across to Georgia, which was the original pipe dream. It was the original dream. And you've ended up making, are you making two wines or a blend of the grape varieties? I've written them down. Kissy and how do I pronounce this one? Chick, well, say, chick, heavy. <laughs> for ease, I say something like kick but it's more like heavy. Okay. Well, let's say kick <laughs> It's sort of, yeah, you sort of like clear your throat and then, then say it. I haven't got to grips with the pronunciation of that one. May, yeah. may I remind everybody to go to my show notes. There will be a link to the transcript and you will see all of the spellings. You will have the full transcript so you can follow along and look up these varieties. Okay, so Kikvi and, yeah, and kissy. kissy. Kissy is We easy. like Kissy. Loving yeah, so the Kissy. It's probably 80% Kissy. Okay, so it's one wine. So it's one wine. So what is Kissy? They're both aromatic white wines. They're very okay. similar. And they actually, um, these were a field blend. They were growing together. And mm-hmm. I think it was quite common then, you know, to put similar grapes together. Again, it was for the Russian market. They were you know, just growing varieties. I mean, most of Georgia is either Saparavi or Katsatelli, you know, the yes. white and mm-hmm. the red, and you know, more than ninety percent of the grapes grown or harvested in the country are those two varieties. Mm-hmm. But you have a few uh, local grapes that were saved because people were allowed to make their own wines, mm-hmm. even when Georgia was making a lot of industrial wines for the Russian market for home consumption. People would have their own little plots and their own quivery and make their own wines and so these varieties survived and i think there's something like uh, 500 but the percentages are tiny i think um, hickory is like 0.2 percent of the total grapes in the country and kissy is probably like 0.6%, something like well, that. Well, that's interesting because I the last time I was reading about Georgia, there's over 500 indigenous varieties yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, but they're tiny. So I went to this Marani, um, which is sort of like a big outside shed. It was a cupboard, like a, a warehouse with no sides, just okay. a roof. Mm-hmm. And they've mm-hmm. got... Um, uh, probably like 30 quiveries were buried in the ground there. But mm-hmm. at this place, they have planted 420 of the varieties to test them in an experimental vineyard. Okay, that's yeah. very, very cool. So yeah. we need to listen to more Georgian varieties then, right? Listen out for. They've got so much potential. When I went there, there was a variety called Krakuna. Which okay, I think, now that's a cool name. Yeah, I can say that one. So that's Krakuna. why I wanted to actually make a wine from Krakuna, because I think it's a great grape, but it's not as well known as some of the other Georgian varieties. Um, mm. But when I got that, because of all the winemaking in Europe, I got there quite late. And even the Saparavi, the red wines, were being fermented. And I didn't, as I said, I didn't want to do Saparavi because, you know, there's a lot of it around and I've got this... Yeah. Uh, you know, calling or something to promote <laughs> grapes that no one has heard of. 
but grapes that I think have great potential. So I was a bit stuck. And anyhow, the people I was working with, Teliani Valley, they found this old field blend up near the mountains and we got the grapes, we harvested them, 204 crates, and we unloaded them into two quevery to ferment. And then mm-hmm. after the fermentation, they put them into one quivery. So I've got one quivery sitting there, and these grapes will be sitting there on skins probably to the end of February, beginning of March. So six okay. months on skins and in quivery, which is you know, surprisingly... That's the traditional way, but generally, you know, most of the wine that comes out of Georgia is made of stainless steel tanks. It's not now, is it? So let's talk about that. I was—I didn't want to interrupt you, but let's look at the Quevery tradition, which is actually—it's now a tiny percentage of the wine made, but this is a UNESCO. Well, not—it's not a heritage site, but it's the because of intangible heritage, it has that UNESCO stamp, doesn't it? So, yeah. can you describe to somebody who is going? What the hell is Quevery? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a big, well, giant clay pot buried in the earth. It's probably uh, the ones I'm using are about 1,000 litres mm-hmm, capacity. Mm-hmm. That is I typical, mean, isn't it? That's typical in size. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. it's fairly, it's a manageable sort of size. So I know that they can be as small as like 50 litres, yeah. but that is really small. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me like about the appropriate size. I mean, mm. when a guy jumped in to clean it for me, the one I was using, and he could stand in the bottom and reach everywhere without you know, any need for anything artificial, you know, any yeah, um, yeah. scrubbing brushes. He could do it with his hands and he could lift himself out and lower himself in That's on his own. That's so cool. How do you... Cleaning, I find the fact that these are... Basically, for everybody who's confused about amphora, because amphora is also a clay pot, the big difference is simply amphora is not buried in the ground, to put it simply. So these clay pots are buried in the ground, quiveries. So cleaning, for me, must be really difficult. And these have to be cleaned, because otherwise you're going to have crazy bacteria issues. So yeah, I mean, what do they do? So most of the year they're filled with wine, so that mm-hmm. obviously protects them. And yes. then just before the next harvest, you you get it out, you bottle it, or you put it in a stainless steel tank. But you know the people I was working with there was scrupulous about cleanliness. You know, even though we're making an orange wine, they don't want any faults or off notes or anything. So when I arrived. There was this guy, a young lad, and he looked like he was in a hazmat suit. He was <laughs> dressed up, you know, looked like he was going to fight some chemical spillage. Uh-huh. And three other guys were sort of like hosing him down and scrubbing him with a brush and, you know, oh cleaning my, the bottom. I, ah, I saw this video on your Instagram yeah. and I think it was fascinating. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then when they've scrubbed his boots, so he doesn't put them down on the ground, someone gives him sort of like a piggyback to the edge of the quivery and he <laughs> then sort of stood on the edge the rim and then lowered himself down uh-huh. and he cleaned it with this sort of like caustic soda solution mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then it was cleaned with like a citric acid solution yeah. and then it was rinsed with an ethanol solution wow okay and then to make sure there was nothing left there was a guy with a pole and a sponge on the end getting <laughs> these clay jars they have a little pointed bit to collect the seeds at the, the right at the bottom right yeah, at the exactly. bottom 
bottom. <laughs> so he was putting the sponge in there to make sure all the water was out. How long did that take for one cleaning session? One one clay pot to be cleaned, one quivery? I don't know. I was so fascinated. Time went quite quickly, but it must have been, <laughs> must have been like 40 minutes or so. Oh my God, for one clay pot. I think there were some sort of breaks between each of those three stages Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that, you know, they let the ethanol do its thing before they rinsed it out. And and even between getting, you know, the last drips out of the bottom, he would wait 10 minutes, you know, before going back so that any water would have, you know, sunk to the bottom. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to tell exactly how long it was, but I mean, it was thorough. Fascinating. Fascinating. Now, how, because I've not seen this actually in action. So how do they, in modern day winemaking, we pump things everywhere when we need to, nice and easy. How are they extracting the juice from a quivery? No, they, they used a pump. Yeah, it was quite modern. Yeah, I mean, I think back in the day, it was sort of, you know, you, buckets and things, oh, buckets God. and ladles. But yes, okay. um, no, it was too much hard work, so it was pumped. <laughs> so the grapes... They were distemmed, but they were pumped in whole. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. grapes went in whole, and obviously the gravity made some of them break and splatter. So there was some juice you know, for the fermentation. And what was surprising was that the cap of these fermenting quiveries, it was mm-hmm. so thick and it's such a workout to, to, to punch push it, it down. down. Oh my it was, gosh. It took about 40 minutes, but I was exhausted after it. You know, fortunately, there were a lot of young lads there doing it. But I suppose for people to think about this, what's the diameter of that top of a quivery? Um, mathematically, I'm thinking probably what, 30 centimeters? Yeah. The, the, Maybe? the top is quite small, yeah. So that means that whereas in a normal tank, when you're punching down the cap, and when we say cap everyone, we mean the skins, basically, you're punching them down so that they you can submerge the skins below the surface, so the colour, the polyphenols, the tannins, everything goes into the wine. In a normal tank, you've got loads of area. So the actual skins, there's not going to be that much. But if you've got this tiny little circle at the top, the depth of the skins, I don't know, that must go down so far. Hence yeah. why it was so <laughs> physical it was. for I you. I mean, I suppose it felt like a third of the quivery was filled with skins. It probably was. You really had to, it was quite solid to push mm. it down and break it up. Yeah, for anybody who doesn't like the gym, but for 2023 is looking for like a new way of, you know, going for a workout and they love wine, I would say they should go and find the traditional winemakers of Georgia and get involved. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it had to be done (laughs) twice a day. But because I wasn't there, I saw this uh, neat little contraption they had on the Saparavi that was next to the quivery I was using. Mm, and okay. when I saw it, and they let me taste this fermenting saparavi, there were no skins on the top. Okay. And had they submerged the skins yeah, permanently? And yeah, they had this neat yeah. little thing. They had some oak staves. Okay. There was probably about eight of them. But they had them together in sort of like one thick block, and they shoved it in, and then they fanned it out like the spokes of a bicycle wheel. And it sort of fitted in the quivery, sort of like 18 inches or so below the top, maybe a couple of feet below the top. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it stayed there. And as there was pressure, it sort of like buckled up a bit. So 
it became sort of wedged in the quivery okay. and it just kept the cap submerged the whole time. So wow, that's okay. So we've used quite a, a modern piece of thinking. Yeah, so that is obviously the modern way because it's not something I've ever heard of. Although I find that intriguing with Saparavi, which for anyone who doesn't know, I think that translates to like red dye because it is so inky. There mm. is actually colour in the juice, not just the skins. So it's intriguing that they would want to do such <laughs> submersion of the cap because it's going to be even more inky, even more purple in the glass. Stain your teeth, right? <laughs> but I suppose it doesn't, you don't have to punch down every day and the cap never dries out. Okay. So mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. that could be a reason. And they might yeah. also probably blend it. They make a lot of saparavi there. I'm just one of yeah, their, okay. their big thing. Interestingly, their biggest seller is a semi-sweet saparavi. Um, Oh, I am not convinced. No, but for the local market, that's what they want. Did you try that? Yes, I didn't like it. (laughs) But in a a lot of these places, you know, they do like off-dry sweet wines. Yeah. uh You know, the local market. And the the local market um, were not into orange wines. I found it very difficult in restaurants and bars, you know, even wine bars, to find an orange wine. Which is so ironic considering, well, and they, they even call it amber, don't yeah. they? That's not even orange. But it's almost like because the history of, well, their history of wine goes back, is it 6,000 BC? 8,000 vintages, yeah. <sighs> you know, and so they started with the creveries. They started with the amber wine, really. And so yeah. it's funny that no one in the country wants to drink it. <laughs> we should probably touch on Saparavi just anyway, because we've said about that. Did you drink quite a bit of Saparavi when you were there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of my favourite reds. I mean, I love Pheasant's Tears. I will always mention that winery. I I think they've done a fantastic job. And yes, you get that purple smile between your lips. You definitely need to check in the mirror after drinking and and your teeth and tongue will be the most purple black that you've ever seen in your life. But I I love the concentration and the the pure fruitedness of the wine. It's one of my favourite reds. I Mm. love it. And, you know, I've tried it from New York and I've Mm -hmm. tried it from Australia and completely different, but just as lovely. Can I come back to Quivery? Because actually, I just realised that this is so unique. This is something that's very special to Georgia. And now around the world, people are doing things. So let me ask you, because maybe you've heard more reasons and more explanations. What is the advantage? Obviously, I know the temperature is one of them. There's the advantage of putting it under the earth, burying it, because it's a constant temperature. Is there any other advantages for being under the earth? That is the main one. It's just the mm-hmm. controlled temperature. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's easy to pump things into it, or even to use gravity to yeah. to just tip things into it, and it and it works. And you're working at ground level, whereas mm-hmm. you know, if you're in a winery, you have to climb tanks and things. So I guess traditionally, maybe practicality. Yeah, practical reasons. It keeps it nice and cool. It's easy to work. You know, especially when you're doing something quite physical, like punching down. You know, you can't do that from Step ladders, it wouldn't be mm-hmm. safe. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, practical reasons back in the day, but mostly for temperature control. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And right now, compared to obviously the traditional way to fill a quivery would be with the skins 
and leave it. Hence why you, the white wines would be coming out amber and that's why it's happened. But is anybody using Quevery there now where they don't just crush and fill, where they actually take the wine off of the skins if they're making a white wine? Is, is anyone bothering to do that? Or not at all? No, I think if you're using a quivery, people expect some it's sort of skins. skin contact. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there are different degrees. And we've taken some of the skins out. So we haven't kept all the skins in. When we transferred the two quivery, the fermentations, we did take some skin out just to, you know, just to make it a bit lighter. But no, I think you either have the stainless steel modern style or you have the traditional quivery style. Interestingly, they call the the stainless steel sort of like the classic style, the classic method. The cla- they call that the classic. It's, yeah, but it's the, it's the European method. But uh-huh, I got a bit confused when people started talking about the classic method. But actually, you know, it's the classic European sort of modern way. Mm, that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Now, we've talked about Quevery. We've touched on the grape Saparavi. I noticed as well that you called the white grape Cazzatelli. Did nobody call it Ruccazzatelli? Well, I, this is... either I was mishearing them, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't hear an R because, yeah, I had always called it Ruccazzatelli or something, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I didn't hear an R. Okay, interesting. It just seems, yeah, I was even did a podcast with Dr. Constantin Frank with the winery in New York in the Finger Lakes, and they actually have a Cazzatelli. Yeah. And I was even talking with them saying, but is it Cazzatelli or a Cazzatelli? And even they were like, we don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows. I presume that is the main white that you found again on restaurant lists and that you're probably tasting. Yeah, that's the main white, yeah. Mm. But a lot of that also is made in an orange style. It's oxidized style a lot of the time still, right? Rather than being a fresh stainless steel classic, as they would say, version. Am I correct or actually... No, I think the majority of the ones that I tried and were bottled were stainless steel. Oh, nice. Okay. So you get to, then you actually get to taste it in that more aromatic capacity. Yeah. I think a lot of the quivery wines are for the export market. Mm. So if you're opening a bottle in a restaurant and you want white, it's Cassatelli, it's stainless steel, it's... Temperature controlled fermentations and aging and traditional winemaking methods. I mean, traditional European New World methods. Interesting. Now, I think we actually, the one thing we have to touch on just before we finish on Georgia, just quickly, is just regions. So, as an example, where is your wine coming from? It, it's the main region, Kiketi. Okay. Perfect. So, that's the main mm-hmm. grape growing region. And I was based in Tel Aviv. Okay. Yep. 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 Which caused a lot of problems when I flew from. Jerusalem or Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, Google kept trying to send me to Israel. <laughs> but did you get to the right place? I did, yes. Well, that's the main thing. And it's fascinating, <laughs> fascinating drive. Um, for some reason, all the flights arrive at stupid hour in the morning, like 3.45, I think I arrived. So <sighs> I drove from the capital, Tbilisi, to Tel Aviv. And I didn't realise how beautiful the journey was, but it's across mountains. and Because uh, mm. Kiketi is sort of like between two mountain ranges. And it was weird looking from my hotel room, sort of down through the valley to the mountains in the distance, and then realising that Russia is the other side. Oh, really? It's right yeah. directly. So that's the, the other side of the Caucasus Mountains, you know. Mm, mm. That was weird with all that's going on, realising how Feeling close, so close you were. Mm. And there were a lot yeah. of Russian voices in the restaurants from that. 
No men oh, really? escaping okay. conscription. Oh, gosh. Wow. Okay. But an interesting oh. time to be there. Yeah. I mean, if only you could speak Russian, right? <laughs> yes. The fly on the wall. Yeah. So, Kaketi, now how long does it take you to get from the capital to this region? Uh, like driving? Yeah, I think it was a couple of hours. Oh, okay. So it's not that close. You need to commit to this. Yeah. And you need a local driver. I mean, there are Because mm, yeah, you can't pronounce it. And... Yes. Well, it's not a language that we're used to. No. So you're not going to be able to understand anything. The taxis are quite cheap. Okay. And they're either very modern sort of Mercedes or they're the, you know, beat up Complete old opposite. <laughs> larders that you imagine from Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Not so safe. In the capital, did you spend any time? Did you see the famous sculpture? No, I did. I went to some wine museum, which tells uh-huh. you the history of the quivery, which was quite interesting. But now oh, I only cool. stayed there for the last night before boarding a flight for, to come back. Oh, that's a shame. I just love it. She's the mother of Georgia, and she stands there tall to greet people. And in one hand, she's carrying a sword so that she can fight her enemies. But in her other hand, she holds a bowl of grapes for her yeah. friends and family. Yeah. And I love that. That demonstrates this cradle of winemaking, that that's how important wine is to the country. Yeah, no, it is a huge tradition. And everyone is very proud of their winemaking tradition. And they all tell you, you know, this is the birthplace. And they do have their arguments with Armenia about where it all started. Well, I know, but then obviously when it comes to the archaeological discoveries and stuff, what have they decided right now? I think Armenia has the oldest dig that they found yeah, right now. But, but they, they won't believe that in Georgia. <laughs> no, that's the birthplace. Uh, but it's a long tradition and they're very proud of it. And everyone has some connection to wine or their family makes it or they just love it and uh, very proud of their tradition. Now, of course, you have been to the main region, which is where everyone should go to, Kaketi, if they want to check out Georgian wine. Is it really hot in the summer? I mean, again, assuming as well, this is a continental climate, really. You know, you're surrounded, yeah. you've got Russia in the north, Azerbaijan to the east, Armenia to the south, or is it southeast? And then Turkey. Yeah, Turkey is where most of the stopovers are because mm-hmm. it's difficult to get direct flights to Georgia. Okay. So yeah. a lot of people go via Istanbul or somewhere in Turkey. Mm-hmm. But I was there in October, so I couldn't really tell what the temperature was. <laughs> when we harvested, it felt like summer. It was really warm, you know, mm-hmm. and great. Mm-hmm. But a week later, when I was driving to the Marani, the animals were coming down from the mountains. There were sheep and horses and cows on the road, men riding horseback, you know, delivering wow. them to their field. And there was snow on the mountains. And it seemed like it had gone from summer to winter overnight without even wow, pausing okay. for autumn. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was so strange. Mm. But definitely an interesting place to visit. But, you know, I was lucky I had a purpose. I think probably going with a tour might be a better idea and they can set up some beautiful lunches and wine pairings perfect lovely so when your wines are ready they can be found or people can sign up for them on your website again right yeah i think that's probably the best way because i don't know when they're going to be ready they're (laughs) they're going to be ready when they're ready when we think they are at their peak Yeah. yeah i think the best thing to do is if you are interested in any of these six wines or the pinot grigio it's just to drop me a line, say you're interested, what you're interested in, and then when they become available, I can tell you that they're available and 
how much there'll be. Love it. And if somebody is not so much of an adventurous wine lover, but wants to know more about wine, you have your newsletter they can sign up for the Canopy newsletter that you do. And yeah. that is on the International Wine Challenge website, right? It's, it's quite um, detailed, geeky stuff. More, oh, it's aimed yeah, more it's at good. wine professionals, but there's a lot on there. And there's also, yeah, the stories of all these six wines that I've made in four countries. One vintage. There you go. So people can continue their wine learning and education. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you uh, telling us a bit about your journey with all of your wines and all of the wine regions you've been visiting. So thank you for taking the time to go through that. No, thank you. May we continue to be inspired by the exciting world of wine, its varieties and its never-ending new regions and creations. <laughs> I will speak to you very soon. Perfect. Lovely chatting to you. Thanks a lot. See you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As I hope you will have gathered from this episode, Kakheti is Georgia's wine capital. It is found in the foothills of the Caucasus Mountains and is regarded by many as the birthplace of wine. Almost 75% of the grapes of Georgia come from here. So it's the region to get to know. Now we touched on the continental climate of this region, but I do think it's fair to say it is getting more extreme continental. Chris's experience in October is interesting. It seems storms in the area can be a problem. There was a horrendous hailstorm at the end of August in 2021, and this was when all the grapes were super ripe and almost ready to be picked. It can have mild, but then also subtropical temperatures, and rain does tend to fall in the winter. Now typically the best vineyards are found on either side of the Alasani River at around 400 to 700 meters and as Chris mentioned he was in Tel Aviv. If Quevery winemaking sounds interesting this really is the center for it. So there's a really nice article about Georgian wine. It's written by this nomadic traveler. She's called Cynthia and her blog is called journalofnomads.com and she has managed to really capture the culture of wine in Georgia and its very essence on this article. So if you're intrigued, head across for a read. I'll leave a link in my show notes. Now, this isn't a famous quote. This is Cynthia's quote to sum up her feelings for Georgian wine. And she wrote, Oh, Georgia, sweet and fierce mother of wine. I will miss you and your dry and semi-sweet white and red juice from heaven when I'll have to leave you to continue my hitchhiking journey towards Thailand. Never will I betray you. I might have a little affair with an Italian, French, South African or Chilean, but know that you're my true love. <laughs> it really is beautiful when wine can touch your soul, not just because it tastes good, but for the families you meet on the way, the people who made it, the stories behind that wine and what it represents. Now, letting you know what's coming up next week, back by popular demand, I was actually really shocked. Some of my most downloaded episodes have been my flashcard series. That's the deep dive episodes to help my wine friends take in their WSET diploma wine exams, but also for all of you who are ready to just get super wine geeky. 
Well, I am starting on the sparkling wines next week. So I am sure you will have no trouble finding yourself a bottle of fizz to drink along as you listen and absorb. I am sure bubbles will help with a person's creative juices, no? (laughs) But for now, that is it for today. For those of you who are always getting to the end of this episode, you know what I'm going to ask you, as I appreciate the business of life always gets in the way, but please do pop across to your app that you're listening on and leave a review or a rating. It's the best way to show appreciation of these episodes as the podcast will be shown to more thirsty wine lovers seeking to go deeper. Share, of course, with your wine-loving friends, and I will see you back here next Monday for some talk on bubbles. Until then, wine friends, cheers to you.